All right. Um, if you've got a packet uh, on the stands back there, we, we have enough. Did everybody get one? Is everybody able to get one? Is anybody not able to get one? I don't know what I would do if you weren't able to, but... Um, so, we, uh, we've been through, we've been in the series uh, called Church Divine, Define, Defined for some time now. Um, this is our seventh week, I believe, in it, and I keep advancing the slide, don't I? Um, and the last few weeks in particular, so we, we've, we, we started at the very beginning just defining what it means to actually be a member of the global body of Christ. And so then more recently in the last few weeks, we've sort of taken apart the little inner working cogs of the church to see the leadership devi- defined and, and parsed out. And what we saw there was that there are two real offices in the church, the first being elders that are appointed as leaders to whom we submit. We see that in Hebrews 13, 7. We're going to read, read these passages in just a second. But elders are appointed as leaders uh, whom we submit to. Uh, they're administers of the word. In other words, they, do, they perform the ministry of the word uh, to the congregation and all of its, its working out. They are tenders of the flock. Uh, they're even uh, called rulers in 1 Timothy. So the first office being elders as appointed as overseers of the church. And then the second being deacons who are servants to the body. They enable the service of the ministry and the administration of the word. And they're nominated by the congregation there in Acts 6 and appointed by the elders there in Acts 6.3. So I want to read uh, those passages just quickly. Uh, you can see in the back there, uh, they're listed there for you in your, in your packet. Uh, the first one, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. as we start to define what elders look like, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Acts 6, 4, this is the apostles uh, who are elders of that first church talking to the congregation. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. 1 Peter 5, 1-3, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then for the deacons, Acts 6.3, therefore, brothers, Pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, the election of of elders. We've seen those two offices kind of pointed out. But if you were to just stop there and move on, what you might be left with is, well then, elders. He says, elders who rule well should be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, meaning there's, there's more functions to their office than just simply preaching and teaching. Uh, you might be left with, well, then the elders are the ones that are the final authority, the yes or no, on all matters. And I think you would be mistaken because, at least in terms of Baptistic church governance, we insist on con- the congregation as having the final authority in matters in the church. And this actually distinguishes someone who is a Baptist from someone who is a Presbyterian. Uh, Presbyterian, Presbyterian uh, church governance or polity is going to be one that sees the elders as having the exclusive uh, final authority. That's what we refer to as elder rule. So you have a Baptist church and, an, and a Presbyterian church. Both might refer to their leadership group as elders. Both may have a plurality of elders in place, And yet the Presbyterian model is going to take that elder body and give them the final authority on all matters, whereas the Baptistic governance insists on congregationalism. The congregation is the final authority on all of it, whether they have elders uh, or or even if they have elders. So here's the the thing about that, and and I don't want to get into a position where we're going, well... We're Baptists, and we read the Bible right, and they're Presbyterians, and they don't. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. We definitely come to two different conclusions, but I think what's important is that we understand 
how we got there from the Word. You would find tons of people in Baptist churches, and I think it's probably a well-known thing where we would say congregational rule is something that we're quite used to, or the authority of the congregation is something we're quite used to. But if you ask that same Baptist, where do you get that? They would go, let's change the conversation, right? <laughs> no, one, no one wants to really start to define that from Scripture or even kind of put out what that looks like. And so you get in some Baptist churches where you've got uh, the congregation having to give approval on how many paper clips the church will buy, what temperature the air conditioner will be set at. Somebody would say amen to that. I know there's a couple of people in here. Right? Uh, but, you know, it, it quickly turns into kind of this democracy where sort of majority rule, and that's, that's the end of all things. Um, but when asked and pushed to actually define it in the Word, we believe in congregationalism because we see evidence in God's Word about it. So the most important thing is that we become convinced from the Word of God itself for congregationalism. Not because of tradition. That's one of the, not the, it's not the worst thing that you can do. It's one of the worst things. Absent the Word of God, just rely solely on tradition. That's not what we want to be either. But I, I, my fear is that's where we kind of gravitate towards when we can't really define it. So, what I want to do tonight is really, let's define congregationalism from soup to nuts. You know what I mean? From beginning of the meal to the end of the meal. Uh, who has nuts for dessert? I, it's old, old, I mean, some of these sayings, you're like, it's ridiculous. Uh, but anyway... Congregationalism, from soup to nuts, from beginning to end. How do we understand congregationalism? Where did it come from? What, what, how do we even begin to wrap our minds around this? Of course, we have evidence for what congregationalism should look like in the New Testament. We have several indi indicators in various passages of Scripture where the congregation is supposed to speak. But I think if we go back to the beginning, what we'll find is, well, actually, from the beginning pages of the, Old, of the Old Testament, we see some very similar uh, things happening in the Old Testament, and some beginnings there of congregationalism, which is where we get congregationalism in the New Testament. It's where Paul says some of the things he says about what the congregation should do uh, as a church body. So it helps, to, helps us to understand what our real mission is on this earth. What purpose do we actually have in this body uh, of a uh, as a church? So the first thing that we have to understand, and, and I think this is probably a well-worn track for us, uh, or many of us in here, is that God created Adam and immediately installed him as really king over the rest of creation. Adam, you might say, was the first priest king that God had put in place, and he put him inside the Garden of Eden, and you remember what, you may remember, what his charge what charge was he was given? Look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. So he's supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So understand, what, what is it that we're supposed to be looking at here? Is Adam supposed to be walking out into the woods and commanding dogs to sit and teaching them how to lay down and, and beg for treats and things like that and shake hands? No, that's not only what he's been given the task of. Of course, he's been put over all the beasts of the field and things like that too. But he's to spread the dominion of the Lord around the earth. He's given the task of spreading God's glory as he is fruitful and multiplies and fills the earth. He's responsible for the kids that are raised up under his watch to ensure that they grow up in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Right? You may be familiar with some of that from the New Testament. The charge was given to Adam to do that. That's what it means. You're putting everybody in the world under the dominion of the king of heaven, as it were. And so uh, we see this in, even in Genesis uh, 2.15. God gives Adam a specific task. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Two, two tasks here. To work it and to keep it. 
So Adam is given the task. I'm going to just adjust my pen here. It's falling down. Adam is given the task of working and keeping the Garden of Eden. But what is, what's interesting about this is we actually see this task handed down to Israel's priest in regards to the temple and the tabernacle. That's their job that they're supposed to do. So when a priest in, uh, in Numbers hears the responsibility that's given to them over the temple, the, the memory that comes back, the hyperlink, if you will, there in the text, goes all the way back to Genesis and the command given to Adam to work and to keep. If you'll remember, some of you may remember, we, were, we, were, uh, we went through a study on, well, it was a brief little, uh, I guess it was a few weeks probably, on the temple and the tabernacle and what that is. And we, we kind of started to lay out the, the sketch of it that it's sort of this place, unique place, where heaven and earth come together, right? Which is essentially what the Garden of Eden is. Adam and Eve are there with the Lord, and the temple comes to be that reinstallation of a little portal, if you will, of the Garden of Eden in the midst of sinful humanity. Everyone has to be clean to enter in. Not, no unclean can come in, right? Only one person can come in and talk with the Lord or meet there with the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And so this temple tabernacle has language associated with it of that of the Garden of Eden. So the priest understands that, that his role is one that is very unique. Look at Numbers 3, 7 to 8. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard, same word there, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting uh, and uh, keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. All right, 26. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus shall you do uh, to the Levites and assign their duties. So they're given these similar tasks that, um, that, uh, that uh, Adam was given at, in the beginning at the, in the Garden of Eden. But what you'll notice is that as, as God calls the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he brings them around Mount Sinai, he actually charges them with a task of some priestly, you might say, uh, responsibilities. Even going as far as to call them a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19. And so what happens then is they form this little community of God's people in the midst of a fallen world who have access to this little porthole, if you will, of the Garden of Eden called the Temple or the Tabernacle, they are actually charged with keeping secure this community. They're making sure that they are also keeping watch over it. That's why when Moses departs, he leaves, he gives to them a second law. Basically, it's the, it's Deuter the book of Deuteronomy, which is just a rehearsal of all the things that he's told them up to now, knowing that he's going to die, he's going to part, and he's going to send them into the promised land. He's given them kind of one last sort of parting shot and review. And we get into De Deuteronomy, and several times it's reiterated to us. Look at 13.5. Um, but that prophet, he's talking about a false prophet, that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, uh, you shall, shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Deuteronomy 17, 7. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Look at 17.12, just a few verses later. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, or the judge, that, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Uh, a couple of passages I put in there by mistake. Look at 19.19. 19. So skip the next one and go to 19.19. 19. 
Then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Another one that I messed up on. Go to the next page. Look there. Deuteronomy 21, 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Uh, Twenty And then 22, 21. Well, you get the picture, but basically he, he continues to go on. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. 22, 24. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. You see the commonality in all these passages. Moses is charging the congregation of Israel to be in charge of the disciplinary action of purging the evil person from among them. In this case, executing the death penalty on someone who breaks God's law. And so you have here uh, the unique relationship of the priest being responsible for not only meeting with God, but also teaching the congregation of Israel. The congregation of Israel responding to the teaching and actually executing what's being taught. They're responsible for the law. When Obviously, this is kind of a well-worn track for some of us, but in the Old Testament, we've seen up through the book of 2 Kings how frequently, time after time, Israel fails to do just that. They, they fail to do these things. Who is held responsible? Only the priests? Of course, the priests failed to teach. And in fact, they taught false worship. But who is also charged with responsibility for idolatry? Well, the people are. When we last left them at the end of 2 Kings, they were hauled off to Babylon for their idolatry. So, point is, we've got this up here, set up front in Deuteronomy. As Moses leaves, he gives to the congregation, purge the evil person from among you. But of course, in Adam's failure to do all of this, originally in the Garden of Eden, God selected Abraham and created a people out of nothing. And it's these people that he called to be fruitful and multiply. And what's interesting is the change that takes place there in Genesis 17, 6, from the initial command that he gave to Adam. Remember, he tells Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But look at what he tells Abraham this side of the fall. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. What's the difference there? What's the change? Well, with Adam... Be fruitful and multiply. With Abraham, I will make you fruitful. It seems that God is coming along with Abraham, selecting a people for himself whom he is going to multiply. He is going to do the heavy lifting, the things that they were charged to do but couldn't do. But then he calls them together around Sinai in Exodus 19, 5-6. And I want you to see what together they were to demonstrate here. Look at Exodus 19, 5-6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's telling this to Moses to convey to all the nation of Israel Look, if you will obey my words, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. You, Israel, are going to be a special nation that is appointed for this task of doing what? What task are they given? Well, the fact that they are a kingdom of priests tells you everything that you need to know. What was the priest? Well, they had special access to the Lord. They had access to this porthole of the Garden of Eden where they could convene with God. What if that you made a nation, a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world? What would they be? They would be the people who usher others into the presence of the Lord. Right? That, that's what charge they're given. That's exactly the same charge that Adam's given pre-fall. They're given now post-fall. Are they going to be able to do it? Is the question. Are they going to be able to accomplish this task? And of course... You know, and I know, and we've seen over the last few years that the story of Israel, its priests, its kings, all of these demonstrate the effects of the fall for over a millennium. We saw for more than 1,500 years how Israel 
tried and failed. Next king comes in and he's given all this pomp and circumstance. And he even is depicted, these kings are depicted often as being uh, Adam-like. Right? David comes in and there's so much promise here to David. He is going to be the new Adam who's going to do this. But then his son who builds the temple, Solomon, comes in. And he actually puts in ornate images and things throughout the temple that look just like the Garden of Eden. Here he is, David's son, who has all the uh, trappings of the Messiah-type figure, and he fails miserably. King after king after king comes in and just fails miserably. None of them can quite do it because there's a bigger problem at work that's being illustrated through the Old Testament. That we can't fix our own guilt and we have an obedience problem. So we have a guilt from the womb. We are guilty of having the knowledge of good and evil that we cannot part from. It, it, is, it is a sin nature built into us. And we have an obedience problem because of it. God can give us a command, and the Old Testament illustrates to us, you can keep giving the commands, and we will keep finding new ways to disobey it. As Paul illustrates even in Romans 7, that that's what the law does. Don't covet. Well, now I want to covet. Don't be envious. Well, now I just want to be envious. So there's something that has to take place. God sends His prophets along in the Old Testament to lay out for us the New Covenant, what that's going to look like. So now that the problem has been properly illustrated for us, we have a guilt problem, we have an obedience problem. The old Garden of Eden, forget it, we can't get back to it. The people that are appointed as our leaders who are given that task, they can't seem to do anything about it either. God promises through His prophets a new covenant as everyone is beginning to wrestle and come to grips with the effects of the fall. We see this illustrated in Jeremiah 31. We see it in Ezekiel 36. The significance of those passages is that the people are in Ezekiel in exile, in Jeremiah, headed into exile, and they're being told, all right, you're going to be punished cataclysmically. However, here's what's coming down the pike. So God sends these prophets along. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember what we just read in Exodus? My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Remember the kingdom of priests? Deal. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So there's the two problems that we just looked at, the guilt and the obedience problem. He's solving both of them. I will remember their sins no more. That's part of the new covenant. I will remember their sins no more. It's thrown out. There, there goes the guilt problem. And I will put my law within their heart. That solves the obedience problem. No more will they need that priestly kind of access for the priest to not only access the Lord, but then turn around and disseminate that knowledge to the rest of them and say to his neighbor, know the Lord. But because I write the law on their heart, they will all know the Lord. They won't have to exhort one another in that way. They'll all know the Lord. They'll be on the basis of encouragement, right? Because they will know the Lord when I put my law within them. Look at, look at Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. I will, take from, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you see what Jesus is doing here, or what God is doing here, is giving the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant, and it is going to be the sol- his solution to the problem that we've seen play out over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And so what then does that lead Ezekiel to promise or to kind of liken this thing to? But the Garden of Eden, look at 36-35. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. So what is the transition, what is the change that's taken place when God puts His law within them, when He writes it on their heart, when He puts His Spirit within them, but that there is a Garden of Eden being born here in His his people. They're being restored because, like Adam before, they were charged with the command of spreading His glory around around the earth and subduing it, and now they're enabled to actually do it where the children of Israel failed time and time again. I think this is probably where we get one of our most difficult uh, things that we wrestle with in the church, whether we know that or not, is the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's tons of people that will debate long and hard about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, I I think I, I would commend to you a book by Stephen Wellham, and I can't remember Gentry's first name, you? Peter Gentry. Um, uh, there's the bridge one, Christ in the Covenant. Is it uh, Connecting the Covenant? Kingdom through Covenant. Um, Kingdom through Covenant is the abridged version. I would, I would commend that to you to just read through. It is, it's, look, plan a few pages a day, all right? Maybe a few paragraphs a day, all right? It's not something that you just sit down and devour like Reader's Digest necessarily, unless you're so inclined, but... Do we do Reader's Digest anymore? Does anybody do that? <laughs> I haven't seen a Reader's Digest in a long time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> outdated analogy. You get the idea. Uh, don't just, you know, it's not something you might want to sit down and just read through all, all at one sitting, but it's something I would commend to you that would help you to kind of connect. Yeah, I have it on, on a record. Thir- a 33? Is it a thir- a 33 or 44? Is that what? Yeah, they, they've come Okay, they've come back. Uh, Wellam and Gentry. Stephen Wellam and Peter Gentry. Wellam and Gentry. Both of them are, are Baptists. So do, what's that? Yep, they have a name. The publisher does, yeah. He asked who publishes it, and I said they, they have a name. Yeah, yeah. it's probably a, on a big sign out in front of their building. It's the same one, uh, whoever that is. I, I don't remember, to be honest. It, it's just, when I don't know the name of something, I'm like, yep, yes, it, it, they have one. Uh-huh. Um, I, would, I would commend that to you. It's helpful to be able to connect Old Testament to New Testament. I think that's one of the biggest issues that we struggle with. And one of the reasons when we don't do that, where we miss what our purpose is as a church. I think because we've, we, we, think, we often think of the Old Testament as, well, that's former. Let's slice that out of our Bible and set that over there on the side as really not as important to me. Uh, and then I can focus more on the New Testament since I'm a New Testament Christian. I think that actually does a lot of harm to us as a church because what we'll see is that the New Testament authors won't let you get away with that. The New Testament authors, as they write, everything is influenced by the Old Testament, first of all. All right? You get into Revelation, and I mean, people have done studies on this, and they've numbered how many allusions John makes to the, the Old Testament. I think they're underselling it. I mean, almost every word has some connection back to the Old Testament. And the, part of the reason why we struggle so deeply with the book of Revelation is because we struggle so deeply with the Old Testament and how it even applies to us. And so, you might think that that has no bearing on you, but I guarantee you, as you see the connection between old and new, and the, the transition between the two, between Old Covenant and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament, 
I think you'll begin to realize just how vital the whole Bible is to your growth and development. But the point is, under the New Covenant, Christians are actually appointed to the work and the watching over of the temple, believe it or not. The problem or the difference is the temple language has changed slightly, but they're given the same task. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. But then look at 1 Peter 2, 4-8. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a, what is this? Holy priesthood. You recognize that language. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 1 Peter 1, 2, 4-8. So there's a charge that is given to New Testament Christians to be the ones that watch over the temple. Paul is giving them that commission. But the temple here is themselves. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the garden, as it were, of God, the temple language in the Old Testament, has now transitioned to the individual believer. Every single member of the body of Christ has the Spirit dwelling within him, become a temple of God, as it were. And so what would that, that would connect us not only to the Old Testament and to Israel's temple and tabernacle, but also back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And what you'll find is that we actually have God's presence there among us, similar to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Look at Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And you may remember from the context of that passage, he's talking to the disciples about the establishment of the church. As the church body is gathered, there I am among them. Right? That God's presence dwells specially with the church there in their midst. Now, so when we... Our mission now, if we're connected back to the temple imagery that, jo- that Paul has already connected us to and Peter has connected us to, that connects us then back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. What mission are we given? What mission are we tasked with? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What meaning does that actually take on then for the New Testament Christian? Well, he's to work and watch over, obviously, the temple. Spiritually, keep guard, keep a safeguard on his body, not participate in in one of those, in the context of one of those passages, in in fornication with cult prostitutes, and so on and so forth. But we also do this in part by making disciples. How, How is Adam supposed to exercise the dominion of the Lord on the earth? What is he supposed to do? Is he just supposed to make dogs sit and beg for treats? No, we've already established. He's supposed to go out and submit the heart of his children to the Lord. That's how he exercises the glory of the Lord on the earth and the dominion of the Lord on the earth. So then what is the church's task? If we're connected to that long string that goes all the way back to Genesis, what's the church's task? By making disciples, what's happening in that process? We're watching people submit their lives to the Lord, and we're spreading the glory of God over the earth by making these disciples, teaching them to obey all that He has commanded us. But not just that, we also do this by keeping the holy separate from the unholy. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, 14-17. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. That's Eden language. And I will be their God and they will be my people. That's Exodus language. Therefore, God, uh, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And so we keep the separate, the holy, from the unholy. And how do we do this? Well, in part, we do some of this through evangelism. So in evangelism, in it, not just the making of disciples, mind you, the making of disciples, I would, I would put more broadly in the category of being a participant in a church, hearing the Word of God preached, being edified and corrected by the brothers around you and sisters around you, and, and going out and learning to obey all that He has commanded us. But then there's evangelism as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and verse 20, look at this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us, what did He give us? The ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're preaching to people. When we go door to door and share the gospel, that's the question we're going to be asking them. Do you know how to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? Do you know that you can be? That's our ministry. It's a ministry of reconciliation. It kind of carries on that that same mantra from Exodus 19 when he gathered them around the Mount Zion and said, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests to the nations. And yet here in the church, they're enabled to do it. How? By virtue of the new covenant only through Christ. It's only because of Christ's death that we have removal of the guilt of sin and the condemnation that sin would bring and have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, enabling us to actually obey the Lord so that Paul would say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? So he's given us this ministry of reconciliation through evangelism. Look at 520. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So then, if we put all those pieces together, what are we seeing has really always been true of God's people that they've always been charged with? Discipline, membership, and doctrine. We've seen purge the evil person from among you, right? From as far back as the Old Testament. God has commanded them, you must take hold of this. You must purge the evil person from among you. But then membership too, in being a kingdom of priests, welcoming, showing others how to come to the Lord. Their ministry of reconciliation that they've been given. But also the doctrine. Who's responsible for the pursuit of idols? Is it the priests? Well, of course the priests are responsible for it. But what about the rest of the body. Are they responsible for it too? Absolutely they are. And they're held accountable for their idolatry. Okay, so in that case, how do we understand what our function is as a church? Do we have these kinds of things in the New Testament? Absolutely. We're responsible for church discipline. What do we see in Matthew 18, 15? Now we've talked at length about this over the last few weeks, but look at Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? The church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. So they're charged with making someone that is a member of their body a non-member of their body. That's essentially what they're charged with doing. Okay? This is what you have to do. If he refuses to listen to the church, he is a Gentile tax collector. And what that means is that the church body is now clarifying what it actually means to be a follower of Christ. And where we see no evidence in your life that you are a follower of Christ, we can't confer on you the title member because you're showing no fruit that you're actually a Christian, right? 
And the church has a responsibility to clarify those boundaries. Look at 1 Corinthians 5.4. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, uh, I cut off the second verse, you're to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that in the day of the Lord he might be saved. So Paul is telling them exactly this. Execute church discipline on this individual who has done this grievous error. But I want you to see how Paul then connects it back to the Old Testament. Watch this. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. Same passage, just a few verses down. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, the sex, with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, do I ha- what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see what Paul's just done? He's connected you, Corinthian church, back to Deuteronomy, to the people of God, who were charged with being a kingdom of priests and exercising the discipline within their community to purge the evil person from among them. And now he's saying, removing the title of member from an individual because you see no evidence of the work of the Spirit in their life is purging the evil person from among you. Our task is to preach and share the gospel so that people are reconciled to God and when they are, the Spirit takes up residence inside them and empowers them to obey. And so where we see no evidence of the Spirit's work in their life, what's also evident with that is they're they're not members of the body of Christ in any real way, at least any way that we can see. So then, we're charged with discipline, we're commanded with discipline, as God's people always have been. We're charged with the membership of the body. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, 8, by accepting one back into fellowship. 2 Corinthians 6, 8, for such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should return, or you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So this likely someone who's been disciplined, maybe even the same person in 1 Corinthians been disciplined now in 2 Corinthians, is saying the forgiveness by the majority is enough. So here the church is doing the opposite. They're welcoming somebody back in by, by majority, accepting them back into membership because, why? They're keeping safeguard, they're guarding and keeping, watch, over the garden of God, the place where God's Spirit dwells, which is inside the members of the church. They're keeping watch over it. Um, and But last, doctrine. It's also important to guard the gospel. We're charged with this as well in Galatians 1.8, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. Look at this. For such a one, the punish... Oh, sorry, I read, this, read the wrong one. Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You see what Paul's saying? The church has the power to tell him, an elder, off of which cliff to fly. Right? If he preaches to them a gospel other than the one he preached to them, the congregation is responsible for guarding that word. For the time is coming, in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own possessions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They're condemned for this. The church is responsible not only for the discipline, not only for the membership, but they're also responsible as the people of God were in the Old Testament for listening to false doctrine and turning their hearts from it. The difference between Old and New Covenant now is that you are empowered by the Spirit within you to actually obey it. So what that means then for us as a church is what what is congregationalism? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from an understanding that God's people have been commissioned to do these things, to keep watch over the community and to ensure that it maintains doctrinal faithfulness to the Lord. The congregation of God has always been responsible for those things. Kings, priests, prophets, 
people. All of them have been throughout all time. The difference is now, having the Holy Spirit in you, you're empowered to obey. So the, the charge then to the congregation, as a member of the body of Christ, church health and unity, which we've been talking about since the beginning, is up to you, members. The reason why you vote on a member or a non-member the reason why you vote to discipline someone is because you are responsible for analyzing their life and keeping watch. Why? Because God's name is at stake. When the false prophet comes in and is the dreamer of dreams, the reason they're to kill him is because he's associating God's name with something that's false. The reason that they're to discipline the person in 1 Corinthians and purge the evil person from among them is because they're associating God's name as member of the church. He bears the name of brother. You're associating Jesus' name with sexual immorality. Purge the evil person from among you. Our role as member is tremendously important. I'm putting me in that too. So it doesn't negate the elder's responsibility of teaching and leading and shepherding according to sound doctrine. Doesn't negate the deacon's role in leadership of service to the body and enabling the ministry of God to go on in the community and in the church body. But it means that the congregation as a whole, elders, deacons, and members of the church, have a tremendous responsibility of ensuring that the people that are here that are conferred with the title member, show fruit and evidence of the Spirit working in their life. Why do we discipline for things like not attending church? Because it's commanded, one, in Scripture, don't forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some. But what does it mean when we say, hey, you should come to church. You should really be here. And they go, Eh. What does that say about them that they refuse to first listen to biblical reasoning, they refuse repentance, and they refuse to come and worship with God's people? What does that say about them? It seems as though the Spirit is not at work within you. We can't confer on you the title brother or sister and associate Christ's name with that if, if that's what that is. The world then begins to think about the church, oh, that's what a follower of Jesus is. A follower of Jesus is someone who really does whatever they want to on Sunday. Well, that's not true. But we've associated Jesus' name with that. Why is it that there's so much apathy in the world around us towards Christ? Well, maybe, I'm sure there's a whole host of reasons. Maybe a part of that small part, maybe a big part of that, is churches that have practiced such relaxed ideas of membership. Anybody who wants to sign, you want to send in a check, great, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Is that all there is to membership? When church membership becomes membership at a grocery store or membership at a gym, it's no wonder why people around go, I'll just get a boat and call myself a member and get out on a lake on Sunday and just send in my check. Well, that's not a member. That's not the way the Bible means member. Questions? David. Discipline and restoration. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And that's, that's Paul's point. It seems as though there was... There's, it's not a foregone conclusion that the guy in 1 Corinthians is the guy in 2 Corinthians. All right, But if they are, pa Paul speaks very swiftly to this guy. And it's possible that the church at Corinth, we know there's a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians from them to him. And it's possible that in that letter they're like, 
Are you mad at him? Should we, you know, like, how do we relate to this guy? And that's where Paul's saying, if the majority of you see the repentance in this guy's life, it's, I, hey, it's not, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. If the majority say yes, then I'm good with that. Seems to be what he's saying. Others? Wow, okay. All right. Timothy. I had a feeling, Timothy. I was like, where's my Timothy question? Church discipline. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. I'm talking about in church discipline, the Spirit being there specially amongst the church as they gather together in agreement to discipline someone. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And it's the same, actually, in the Great Commission, where they, they go out and make disciples, and as they do the church's mission, he says, specially, he is there with them. I will be with you to the end of the age as they accomplish the church's mission. Discipline being the first of that. Sorry if I wasn't clear on that earlier. Uh, I preached a sermon on it not that long ago where I think I was maybe a little bit more clear than I was tonight, hopefully. Yeah. All right, All right. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a time together that we could turn over all the rocks of your scripture and look for what our responsibility as a church. I pray that you would put on the hearts of members in this congregation the res- tremendous responsibility that we have as the body of Christ to safeguard the gospel, to ensure that your name is not profaned in our midst or amongst the people that we interact with. Pray, Father, that we would gather the, the gravity of the responsibility that you've placed on us, but also rejoice in the grace that you've given to us in your spirit, that you've empowered us to actually do this and to represent you on the earth, to spread your glory from beginning to end. I pray that that mission would never leave our minds, that your gospel would never leave our mouths, that everywhere we go, we would know that we are bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ by our words and our actions and are empowered to do so by the Spirit that dwells within us. In Jesus' name, amen.